is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. We kept hearing about how cheap and easy the COVID tests, the at-home versions, would be for us. You go to the store, you buy one, you test yourself, and then uh, you can go outside. But where are the tests? They're not so easy to find. L.A. could soon join New York City in having a vaccine mandate for most indoor areas. But who is going to enforce it? And the pandemic seems to be changing people's feelings about car companies. Let's start with COVID home tests. Dr. Emily Volk is a pathologist and president-elect of the College of American Pathologists. Doctor, other countries seem to have these tests. Why can't we get our act together here? You know, I, I can tell you that these tests are uh, certainly an important part of keeping us safe during COVID. What's going on with the supply chain, I can't speak to specifically, but I can tell you that if you're going to use these tests, you've got to be really careful to follow those directions. Um, did you, Mike, did, Mike and Charles, have you guys tried to use these tests? Because I have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, the one of them, the Abbott test was the one that I... Uh, I use. Yeah, I mean, it's a little tricky. You got to, you know, you have to have There's a, a pamphlet. There's yeah. a pamphlet. You got to read this whole thing. <laughs> you got to time it. You got to not touch certain things. You got to put exactly six drops into a tiny hole in a card. They could make it simpler. Well, actually, here's the thing. You know, those tests are, you know, they're fine for what they are, except if you don't follow those directions to the letter, those results are not reliable. Um, and, you know, those test results are are really only one tool in the many tools that we've got for testing for COVID. So if somebody has symptoms of COVID and they use one of those home tests and they come up negative, they really need to go to a, you know, a, a accredited laboratory, I would say a CAP accredited laboratory to get the PCR test to make sure they don't have a false negative test from that home test. Then what you scenario, know, I, what scenario are they in your mind, the best for? Is it if you are symptomatic and then it does flag you as positive, like that's a pretty good indicator? Because that's usually when they work, right? Right. So I think the the risk, you know, is both for false positives and for false negatives. I'm more afraid of a false negative than I am a false positive, right? Um, Because I think a false negative is when you find yourself potentially infecting others when of course you really don't mean to. Um, So when you're using those tests, folks have got to read the instructions and it does matter. If you put six drops and it says to put four, you you need to start over. But Um, but, but, put that card on a hot surface, it could give you a a incorrect result. But isn't one of the the tricks, if you want to call it that, to these tests is you really have to use them uh, to have any value, you know, really often. I mean, you don't, yes, you want to use if you have symptoms or, but, but you know, again, in Great Britain where they're given out for free, you know, I know people who just, they take a whole, you know, armful and they test themselves and their family practically every night. And the more you do it, A, you get better, you know, at doing it from the technical point of view, but also the more you do it, right, you're going to be more likely to end up with an accurate picture, are you not? It is true. The more frequently you you use those tests, the better they're going to work. And the more, frankly, the more skilled you're going to get on doing the test properly. Uh, But again, uh, if you have a negative test and you are symptomatic, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to go to an accredited laboratory and get that PCR test 
which is the best test for COVID. Dr. Emily Volk, president of the College of American Pathologists. New York City requires people to be vaccinated before eating at a restaurant, going to a Broadway show or an indoor concert. Now, L.A. is set to have the same kind of mandate. City Council votes tomorrow for the indoor mandate. There are concerns and trouble it could cause for small businesses. Mike Fuhr, city attorney of L.A., running for mayor. Uh, Mike, unrealistic to have this kind of law if you can't really go out and enforce it? This is a very important law. And let me explain why before we dive into the questions. You know, we need to help support our businesses and making customers more confident when they go into, say, a restaurant is likely to improve business for indoor locations. Uh, We have to also avoid shutdowns. You know, we can't afford another shutdown of our economy. We can't afford to have schools shut down again. You know, even though we've seen a decline in infections every day, infections yesterday were still five times what they were in June. Uh, We should be helping to encourage people to get vaccinated. We have what's essentially a surge of the unvaccinated now. And so there are many important reasons to have a law like this in place. Um, And we've seen laws like this be effective in other jurisdictions, small cities, West Hollywood, Palm Springs, larger cities, San Francisco, New York. It's important for Los Angeles to follow their lead. And it's about time. Okay, so now to the point that Joe Buscano is making, withholding his vote, saying this is a law that cannot possibly be enforced in a place this large with so many restaurants and and people who don't want to get vaccinated, and and it will turn into a mess. So will it? Can you enforce this? Well, you know, one could have said the same thing about the, the mask mandate that's in place throughout our region right now. And in the main, we've seen that mask mandate work just fine. Uh, there were occasional incidents, not too many, uh, and I expect the same to, be, uh, to happen with regard to this vaccine mandate. I'm just talking to somebody who was in Palm Springs where they have this rule, saying how easy it was on a daily basis to, to have this in place. Uh, in, in, largely in the jurisdictions that have had this rule, uh, they have seen declines in uh, the infection rate, and they have seen compliance with this rule. Uh, And I think it was uh, extremely irresponsible to withhold that vote last week by Mr. Buscaino, because the fact is, all he did by withholding his vote was make it harder for businesses to comply, because this rule is likely to pass. They would have had even more time to put it in place. Had the vote uh, happened last week, I encourage the council to pass it tomorrow. You know, uh, Mike, not you, Mike, but Mike Simpson, Mike, uh, and I, he's waving his hand. Uh, Mike and I were talking during the break that, you know, uh, to be realistic, uh, any law, you're never going to be able to have 100 percent enforcement, right? I mean, we don't catch everybody that goes through a red light. The whole idea is you have the law in place, right? And then uh, you do some spot checks and maybe you catch a few people and they they're set as used as examples to others and hopefully others will then not make the same mistake so i always thought it was kind of a weak argument to make is it not that well you can't enforce it because you don't enforce every law anywhere well this is my point exactly and though this was my point with regard to how it's working in other jurisdictions uh what's happening here is we have a pretty stark choice to make as a community we either risk greater infections and the shutdown of our economy. We either make it less likely that vaccinated customers actually patronize restaurants and other locations in their area, 
or we take the responsible step of avoiding those shutdowns, encouraging vaccination, encouraging customers to be confident when they go into these venues that they're safe, helping boost our economy. And to me, it's a very simple choice. Um, and I, at the end of the day, we've seen, I think, that every step we've taken in this pandemic that has asked for some compliance has led to compliance. The only thing missing is we have a percentage that's declining, but still a percentage of people who've chosen not to get vaccinated. Ideally, this will encourage them to. So let's say there's a restaurant that, that just is never checking. So what happens? Does, does word eventually get around and someone comes to, to look after them? Or, I mean, as a customer, if I go and they're not checking and I feel uncomfortable, I can go to another restaurant. Yeah, exactly. So here's what's going on. Uh, the chief legislative analyst for the city is coming back to the council with a report soon on different options for the enforcement you're talking about. Uh, as far as a patron's concerned, the enforcement simply is you're not able to go, in, go into the establishment. For an establishment that is failing to check, um, the world is going to work like this. Uh, in early November, November 4th, uh, this is going to start to take effect. Uh, but the enforcement with regard to establishments won't happen until November 29th. At that point, we'll have in place uh, a regime under which there are some spot checks like you were like you're describing. Uh, the sanction is essentially a ticket. It's what's called an ACE citation. It's a monetary penalty. And I think, as we've seen in other jurisdictions, it's going to be rarely invoked because those businesses want to be able to comply to send a signal to their vaccinated customers that it's safe to come in. That's a real hurdle right now. How many of us know families, senior citizens and others who are reluctant to go to patronized locations because they're not sure if the other patrons will be vaccinated, too? That'll change. Businesses know it. They have an incentive to check because they have an incentive to boost the business among the vast majority of Angelinos who've chosen to get vaccinated. Mike, we, we've had small business owners on the show who make the argument that, sure, if you're a big venue, you can afford to hire, you know, like a, a door keeper who will screen people and ask for their vaccination cards. But they make the argument, look, you know, we're a small mom and pop shop or restaurant. Uh, we're busy in the back. We're doing other things. We don't have the manpower or the, the ability to add to the payroll to do this. What do you say to those people? They won't have to do that because if you think of a small restaurant, for example, invariably in, in every small restaurant I've gone to, someone greets you and says, welcome, we don't have a table yet, or please sit over here. That person will say, show us your vaccine uh, card before we seat you. That's all it's going to take. Uh, and as they say, uh, if the sky was really to fall with a rule like this, we would have seen it in places like West Hollywood, where there are tons of restaurants enforcing this rule, in places like Palm Springs, small jurisdictions, where there are lots of venues like this. And, of course, the big jurisdictions like San Francisco and New York haven't seen problems here. And they haven't seen their small businesses go out and have to hire for this purpose because, by and large, it's easy to effectuate. This goes further, though. I mean, there's retail included in here. Does that extend to, like, small, like little convenience stores and stuff? Because I don't see no, them checking because those guys, they don't have a staff or the time. It does not. It does not. It pertains to a, a shopping center, but by, but it generally pertains to a few categories. Restaurants, coffee shops, personal care locations, and entertainment venues. It also pertains to large outdoor events. All right. Mike Fewer, city attorney for Los Angeles, also candidate for mayor in next year's election. Mike, thanks for talking to us. Coming up after this short break, the pandemic changing how people trust transportation. 
A new survey looks at how people are feeling about car companies and transportation with the pandemic now a year and a half old. Some of the findings, interesting. KYW's Matt Leon with Joanna Piacenza, head of industry intelligence for Morning Consult, which conducted the survey. Um, I have two favorite kind of findings from this report. We can kind of unpack each of them one at a time. The first is that Ford is the stickiest brand for Americans. Now, what that means is we asked respondents about their car ownership history, right? As well as what car they own now. So you own a Toyota and it's your first Toyota, or have you ever bought a Toyota before? Are you a return customer? So Ford was the most owned brand. 62% of respondents say they have owned a Ford car at one point in their life. Um, It's also the stickiest. So it has the highest share of people saying they've owned several cars from the brand. That's a really important demographic for car manufacturers. 31% say they they own a Ford now and they've owned or leased one in the past. To that point, we were talking off the air. I feel seen by these numbers because <laughs> I am not a car buyer or a car guy by any means. A car mm-hmm. is just something to get me from A to B. Mm-hmm. And my last three cars have been Fords. And the first one was bought simply because it was the right price at the right time. No preference for, for yep. it was. Mm-hmm. But since then, that car did me right. My last two cars after that are specifically Fords for that reason. I've gone and gotten Fords because other than the occasional minor malfunction and maintenance, they, they, I can run them into the ground and that's kind of my, my MO. So it would seem to me specifically with auto brands, that stickiness you're talking about, because you're talking about a major purchase that's going to be intimate, intimately connected to somebody's life. Uh, that's huge. That is really, really big, more so maybe than just about anything else. Yeah, this is for many consumers, um, one of the largest big ticket items, right? Besides a home, perhaps is buying a car. So your experience there, your experience as a first time buyer of a Ford, and then having a positive experience with that brand. So you turn back to them. That is exactly what every car manufacturer is trying to replicate with every customer. So they'll be very happy (laughs) to hear that from you. Other than Ford, were there other brands that scored high? Well, I, I kind of want to focus on the ones that scored low. That was kind of interesting to me. So we have Ford at the top, right? Not only are they the, the most owned brand, but they're the stickiest brand. There are three brands that have that, you know, you should keep an eye out for in terms of customer retention. Uh, that is Chrysler, Dodge, and Buick. They have the largest gaps between former owners and return customers. So that means that people are saying, I don't own that brand now, but I have in the past and I own something else. They had enough of a negative experience with that brand that the next time they chose to to purchase a car, they went with someone else. Did you get any feedback on the why? Did Did you dig down that deep on specifically with that? No. 
See, this is why I like our conversations because I just have a, a word doc up of all the things <laughs> that you ask because this is good future research, right? Why? Why did you go with another brand? Another interesting question I have is, is first-time buyers. A lot of people purchased their first car or purchased a car during the pandemic. 40% of people who own a car said that they purchased a vehicle in the last year. That's huge. And that goes up among Gen Z and millennials. Younger consumers were were really kind of driving car purchasing uh, during COVID. And I guess, once again, something that jumps out at you, but makes sense when you think people want their space. They don't want to have to rely on other people for their physical safety in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but I guess that is... Uh, made complicated by the fact that we're having this chip shortage and cars are tough to come by. So it's yeah. kind of a perfect storm for the market. It's it's really, uh, yeah, car makers are really having a headache right now. Kind of early on in the pandemic, flashback to spring 2020, everything stalled, right? Consumers were not purchasing cars. They weren't going out into lots, interacting with dealers because we were still really learning how the virus spread and, and folks were being a little bit more conservative. Then we saw that giant jump in car sales, right? And because of that pause, because of the time period where there weren't a lot of consumers uh, buying cars, uh, a lot of car brands pause their own chip orders, right? And so that's kind of what we're seeing, this domino effect now. Um, and of course, car brands are going back to the chip manufacturers and saying, hey, you know, we'd, we'd love to, you know, up our order, but, you know, they're a business, they've moved on. And so it's... It's going to be a rough time for the car industry over the next six months because of this shortage. And I'm interested when we're talking about brands that people get and then they don't come back to. Maybe that shows the power of their advertising that they're able to bring people in, but then the actual product isn't able to keep them. Yeah, so this report kind of looks at at two important factors for trust, right? Building it and breaking it. And if you look at the specific responses in this report for how trust is built in the car industry and then how it's broken, you see two different reasons, really. And that's interesting to me because in previous reports, what has built trust, if you don't do that, it breaks trust. But for the car industry, it's a little different. So cost builds trust. If you are honest and transparent about your pricing, if you have good value for your price, that is going to build trust among consumers. Safety breaks trust, right? So low safety ratings, um, uh, something going wrong, malfunctioning with the vehicle, that's something that's going to break trust. So if that happens, I can see consumers going to another brand. But that first point, cost, building building trust, I think one of the things I keep going back to is I think there's this really incorrect trope of kind of the dishonest salesman when it comes to trust in the car industry. And a lot of people go to a dealership or go to purchase a car. They always think that, you know, they're they're, they always think that they could get a better deal. So I think that's why we're seeing costs coming up so much in kind of building trust. And there was also, you saw there was, uh, you asked questions about warranties and, you know, honor, not honoring a warranty, you know, stuff like that. That can be a, a another problem that uh, in, in terms of breaking trust, no? 
Huge trust breaker. So 74% of consumers would stop buying from a car brand if it didn't honor its warranty. Now, the good news about this is I think this is an easy thing for car brands to, to follow, right? Um, a lot of the times in our previous reports, uh, the responses for the highest share of people that would stop purchasing was something more nebulous, like stopped being reliable. That's a pretty vague term and means something different for each brand. For this one, it's very cut and dry, honoring your warranty. The other thing I want to highlight about this is it's a relatively high share of consumers compared to other reports that we've done. 74%, three quarters, that's a lot of consumers who would completely abandon a brand if that trust was broken. You mentioned earlier ride hailing apps and the numbers there, and I found that really interesting. Uh, first of all, give me the top line, what you found. Yes. Yeah, so this is some trend data we have at Morning Consult. Back in 2018, we asked how safe people felt while they were using ride hailing apps. And at the time, it was 47% of U.S. adults saying that they feel comfortable using a ride hailing app, Uber, Lyft to get around. Now, considering the pandemic, considering what we went through where uh, social interaction was all but taboo, I expected those numbers to, to go up as, as ride hailing has become more popular since 2018, but not necessarily as high as they've gone. Right now, it stands at 83%. 83% of the public feel safe using a ride hailing app. That's great news for Uber and Lyft and other apps in that market. You know, I do think that car rental brands and car brands have their eye on the share economy within mobility. But for the most part, considering how good sales have been for cars, it's more of a a nuisance than an actual disruptor or a threat to the industry. Johnson & Johnson reportedly planning to ask federal regulators this week to approve a booster shot. The New York Times says federal officials have become increasingly worried that the more than 15 million Americans who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine face too much risk of severe COVID. The FDA scheduled a meeting on October 15th of its expert advisory committee to discuss whether to grant emergency use authorization of a J&J booster. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.